0: You are now listening to the December 7th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Walking Our Talk, Grace Upon Grace, and Understanding Israel. First, let's begin with Walking Our Talk. Welcome to Walking Our Talk. With Alan and Polly Heller. Join our conversation as we discuss practical ways to apply spiritual principles to your everyday life and help you walk your talk one step at a time.
1: Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller.
0: Hi Alan.
1: We're talking about identity today, more on identity. If you didn't hear the last podcast, we started with a little bit of that in Colossians. The other classic passage about your identity in Christ is in Romans chapter 6, and uh, starting in verse 4, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that, as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And that's really the key is walking in our newness of life. And in order to do that, many times we need to accept the truth of what God said, even though we don't feel it, we may not even being obedient at the time. But the truth will set you free. And the truth is always the truth. It's like gravity. I mean, when I hold a pencil up and drop it it always goes down unless I'm in a space capsule up where there is no (laughs) gravity, and then it doesn't go down. But the laws of nature down here are when I drop something, it goes down. And if we walk as carnal men or women, then we're going to be behaving like what we used to be. And sometimes we think when we do that, we've lost our identity. Well, maybe... From our perspective, we have lost our identity, but the, the truth is still the truth whether we believe it or not. And so we need to learn to walk in who he says we are, walk in our newness of life rather than taking our cues from the world or from our own emotions or whatever.
0: Well, that's true. You know, it's uh, approaching Halloween time here in the United States, and the, the kids— um, dress up as different they put on costumes and um our daughter sent us a picture of our little one and a half year old grandson dressed up in a little lion outfit so that he can go ask the neighbors for candy (laughs) and but putting on a little lion outfit doesn't make him a lion he's still Sam. And when he takes off that little lion outfit, he really is our little grandson, Sam. And that's kind of the way it is with us in Christ. We we think that we are our flesh, but the word of God says that we should take off the flesh we need to shed our flesh because we have died to our flesh and just like sam in that little lion outfit doesn't make him a lion we dressed up in our flesh are not our flesh we really are the image of christ we are hidden with christ in god and that's who we really are when we take off our flesh
1: so and there are different translations of flesh we're describing flesh as that which is the sin that's in us but not us that's right and it's the propensity to do that it's not something you could put in a test tube and test it out but love isn't something you could put in a test tube either but you can see the effects of love and i think you can see the effects of either walking after the flesh or walking after the spirit and Galatians talks about the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When I'm walking in the Spirit, and when I've put on my new life in Christ, I will demonstrate those characteristics, and when I'm not demonstrating them, that's how I know I'm not walking in the newness of life. Verse 5 in Romans 6 says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. And there's a great worship song that talks about we're no longer slaves of sin, but we are his children. And as his children, we walk in newness of life. And I remember when our kids were small, they would come over from being at the neighbor's house and saying, you know, the Smiths don't do this. Why do we do this? And I said, well, we're hellers and the hellers have this identity and we do it this way. And if you get old enough and you don't want to be a heller anymore, that can be your choice. But right now, this is how we walk as a heller. This is our identity. So my wife is looking at me, smiling and saying, (laughs) you keep going. So knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. A small verse in verse seven, he who has died or she is freed from sin. So I don't have to be a slave to sin. I can be a slave, a bondslave of Jesus Christ and in his power be able to walk in the newness of life and walk out the truth of the gospel. Now, if he had, we have died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. So Jesus broke the power of death and has given us the very nature of himself if we believe in him, if we've asked him into our life, and that we never have to die again. Death no longer is master over him. Somebody has said if you yell at a corpse or if you push him or, or pull him or whatever, what happens with a corpse? They don't respond. And so I can know whether I'm walking in the flesh or walking in the spirit, if I'm reacting in the wrong way, if I'm not reacting the way God would have me react, then I have an idea that I'm allowing my flesh to have its fling, so to speak. So in verse 10, it says, for the death that he died, he died for sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourself. So because of what Christ did by his death, breaking the power of sin, once and for all. The life he lives, he lives to God. So, we also live our life unto God and what he wants rather than what we want. Even so, we are to consider ourselves dead to sin and we are to be alive to God in Christ Jesus. That is who we are to model ourselves, and not just model. We don't want to just try and act like Jesus. We want Jesus in us to act like himself.
0: One of the versions of the Bible that I like to read is the J.B. Phillips translation, and it paraphrases a lot of these concepts and puts it in uh, in ideas that sort of flow together in more everyday language. And and it says here um, in this passage, If we have, as it were, shared his death, let us rise and live our new lives with him. Let us never forget that our old selves died with him on the cross, that the tyranny of sin over us might be broken For a dead man can safely be said to be immune to the power of sin. Mm. As you were saying, Alan, you can kick a corpse and it's never going to respond.
1: If it does, we're in trouble.
0: (laughs) That's right. And if we were dead men with him, we can believe that we shall also be men newly alive with him. We can be sure that the risen Christ never dies again. Death's power to touch him is finished He died because of sin once. He lives for God forever. Hmm. In the same way, look upon yourselves as dead to the appeal and power of sin, but alive and sensitive to the call of God through Jesus Christ our
1: Lord. Hmm. Then it goes on in verse 12, and it says, Therefore don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts, And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. What a contrast. Are we presenting ourselves to sin and allowing it to have its way with us? Or are we presenting ourselves to God and allowing his truth and his very nature to be expressed through our personality and who we are. I mean, that's the wonderful thing is that he allows us to still have personality. He doesn't kill our personality, but he wants to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And in order to do that, I have to present myself. I have to give myself over to him. And again, that's that Romans 12:1 and 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, presenting yourself to him. And if you've never done that, my encouragement would be, if you keep seeing the same sin happen over and over, have you ever presented that sin to the Lord, given it to him, laid it at the cross, laid it at the foot of his feet and uh, the foot of the cross, and allowed him... To take that and now present yourself to him, fresh, a new start. He says his mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. And it says in verse 14, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law but under grace. So what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves, For obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness. So it's a clear choice. Am I going to present myself to sin and disobey, or am I going to present myself to God and walk in righteousness and newness of life, which there's freedom and blessing and grace and mercy and I'm not quite sure why. I mean, sometimes I listen to people's stories and they are so going 180 degrees away from God and wondering why it is that their marriage is so messed up and their family is so, and their thinking is so messed up. And I'm asking them, are you presenting yourself to God? Right. Are you spending time in His Word? Are you filling your mind with the truth of who Christ is? Or are you filling it with the garbage of the world? And, I mean, it doesn't take much to get covered over with the junk of the world. So it takes a discipline and a focus and an intention each day to get up and, like you were saying in the last podcast, to present yourself to God and just say, God, I can't do this. I need you.
0: The key in this passage is that you are the slave of the one you obey. Mm. You know, you might say, well, I belong to Christ. Mm-hmm. I'm a Christian. Right. But you're not obeying Christ. Mm-hmm. You're obeying sin. You're obeying your flesh. You're obeying as soon as temptation comes along, you're drawn away. So whose slave are you really? Who do you really belong to? You're the slave of the one you obey. Mm. And we were um, in a, a situation, uh, sitting in a room with another couple who were dealing with marital issues, and she said, "He doesn't see my intentions. I really, I really want to do, you know, what he wants, and I really want to be a, a loving w- wife, and I really want to be." Uh, What he wants, but that's not he's not seeing what what you what you want to be and what you say you want to do. He's seeing what you actually do Mm. do. He sees your actions. Are you really behaving like a loving wife or are you following after Your flesh and acting selfishly and impatiently. And what are you really obeying? Because that's whose slave you
1: really are. So, verse 17 of Romans 6 says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. So, you have to become, to me, that's a process. You became obedient. But it's from the heart. I have a lot of people that are trying to deal with sin and the external fruit of it, uh, the behavior, rather than dealing with the heart. If we deal with the root, we deal with the fruit, as our friend uh, Ed Delph says. We time with him with uh, the podcast on trust. But you deal with the root, you deal with the fruit. If you have good root, you have good fruit. If you have bad root, you've got bad fruit. <laughs> So you become obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. So if you have teaching that you were committed, that means that you actually learned something. (laughs) So what are we learning? We should be learning from the Word of God. That's why we have time with him. It's not just to check off a box. And then it goes on as it says, And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. What a great thing to be slaves of righteousness, right living, and see the fruit of that. So, just to learn how to walk in obedience from the heart, putting to death the deeds of the flesh because we have accepted the righteousness of God in Christ that he says we are if we are his children and if you've never received Christ if you've never really come to know him it's gonna be hard to see this happen but you have to ask him to come into your life to put to death the selfishness and the pride and ask for forgiveness that he could come into your life and change you and make you into the person that he wants you to be, that he designed you to be. And if that's you right now, and you want to come to know Jesus for the first time, just ask him, Lord, come into my life. I ask you to forgive me for walking away from you, for not being willing to walk in your ways. And I give my life to you right now in the name of Jesus. And if you've done that, he came in, and first John tells us, the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life. This life is in the Son. If you have the Son, you have life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. These things I have written to you, John says, that you may know that you have eternal life. And so right now you can know that you have eternal life because You let go of your life, and you asked him to have his life.
0: So when that happens, when a person gives his life to Christ, Mm -hmm. when I gave my life to Christ, I had a lot of things that I was enslaved to (laughs) that he came in and took over from me. He took um, some very outward things like smoking and drinking and, uh, and flirting with men and those kinds of things, that he, he said, this is displeasing to me. This is not my plan for you. And I just went, yes, Lord, I want to be freed from those things. I want you to fill me with your spirit and give me the power to be the person I really want to be, but didn't have the strength to be apart from his forgiveness and his strength.
2: Hmm.
0: Um, So there were a lot of, initially, a lot of very big outward things that God took from me uh, and healed me from. But that was, whatever, 46 years ago. Hmm. And so... There are still, what is my flesh now? What are the things that I still wrestle with? I, I don't have to deal with drinking and smoking and those kinds of major outward habits anymore. But there are still everyday pockets of selfishness that I need to give over to Christ hmm. and allow him to take from me to so that his spirit shines through me.
1: So as we wrap this up, Second uh, Peter verse 2 says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power, it's his power, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So that's my commendation to you today. Walk worthy in the Lord by his grace and peace that's multiplied to you by his divine power. He is the one that will allow you to walk in newness of life. And so we pray you will walk your talk today.
0: This has been Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller, where we put into action those principles we know from God's Word, one step at a time. You can find more help at our website, walkandtalk.org. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is light and darkness. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David.
3: John chapter 1, verse 5. So remember, John was a disciple of Jesus, a very close disciple of Jesus, who wrote the book of 1 John that we studied this fall. And this verse is from his account of Jesus' coming. And he starts at the very beginning talking about how Jesus came to bring light to the world and he says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And I put this verse at the top of your notes because it is a perfect lead in to Revelation chapter one, another book that John wrote. And this chapter, specifically the second half of this chapter, paints what is quite possibly the most majestic portrait of Jesus that has ever been written down on paper. And the whole picture revolves around light in darkness. So get the picture. Whenever we study the Bible, we need to start by stepping into the shoes of the first people who read a particular text. So I want you to imagine right now, wherever you're sitting, imagine you're a Christian in the Roman Empire in the first century. This would not have been an easy time for you. Because you are a follower of Jesus, you face danger on every side. Persecution from the Jewish establishment, persecution from the Roman government. Imagine that you have members of your church, maybe even some members of your family, who are imprisoned right now in dark dungeons. Others you've seen hung on crosses or thrown before wild beasts. People you know from your church have been beheaded. So you get this letter from John, a follower, close friend of Jesus who is now exiled to an island because of his faith. And there you sit, daily facing pressure to bow down and worship the Roman emperor, knowing that if you don't, you may lose your job and with it your ability to support your family. You may lose your family or you may lose your life. And all inclinations are pointing to things getting worse, not better. And it's all because you're a follower of Jesus. So think about it, even back in our shoes right now, have you ever followed Jesus? Or maybe even just taken a big step of faith in your life and all of a sudden, things got worse for you, not better. The kind of thing causes you to question your faith. Put yourself back in the shoes of those folks in the first century. It's pretty tempting to compromise your faith, or at least just tone it back. Try not to make a big deal out of your faith. These were dark days for men, women, and children who were reading the book of Revelation which is what I love about how John starts the second half of this chapter in verse nine. So follow along with me. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus. Don't you love that? I, John, your brother, your partner in tribulation and patient endurance, in other words, john is saying to these christians in dark days like we are family i'm your brother over here we're we're family together this is not easy but none of us is alone we are partners together in tribulation helping each other patiently endure you know as i was reading studying meditating on this passage this week i just couldn't help at this point and for this reason want to pause for a moment here in this text and just say personally how thankful i am Well, here's what John does, an inspiration of God's Spirit, so follow with me in verse 10. He writes, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Bergamom, to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So John is told to write a letter to these churches that are spread throughout the Roman Empire, So then he says in verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. Now think about that with me. What's the purpose of a lampstand? To give what? Light, right? So in the middle of dark days, I turned and I saw seven golden lights, lampstands, verse 13. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, This is a vision of Jesus, and John is overwhelmed. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. What does all this mean? I've heard it said that Revelation is the book of the Bible that people most want to hear taught because they don't understand it. And then I've heard it said, that Revelation is the book of the Bible that preachers least want to teach because they don't understand it either. There's so much imagery here. I want to show you, so especially here at Christmas, like we think about this picture of Jesus as the baby in a manger. I want to give you another picture to put at the forefront of your mind this Christmas. I want to show you in what we just read, 20 characteristics of Jesus that lead to two massive takeaways for us. Now, if you're any good at math, that's a total of how many points? 22. And you're thinking, I'd like to have lunch at some point and I get it, me too. So, we're going to go pretty quick here, and I just want you to see who Jesus is, maybe for those of you who are exploring Christianity to see Jesus for the first time today for who he is. I've prayed that God would open your eyes to see Jesus for who he is first time. And then for those of you who may have been Christians for years, for decades even to understand in a deeper way today who he is because his greatness is inexhaustible. In a sense, indescribable. I mean, just think about John's assignment here. In verse 11, this voice like a trumpet booms behind him and says, write what you see in a book. That's not an easy thing to do. Like, it's one thing to write down words that you hear. It's a whole other thing to write down in words the wonder of what you see with your eyes. It's like, imagine you have a pen and a piece of paper. Somebody says, write down what you see in the Grand Canyon. And you look at your pen and paper and you look at the Grand Canyon and you think, there's no way to put on here the grandeur of what I see out there. So that's what John's trying to do. So feel the difficulty of his task as he turns and he sees the voice. How do you see a voice? He sees the voice of the one who's speaking to him and he attempts to describe him in words. He is like a son of man. So characteristic number one, Jesus is fully human. Just imagine John's perspective. He had spent three years with Jesus on the earth, every day, walking together, talking together, eating together. Then after three years, he had seen Jesus brutally slaughtered on a cross. Then three days later, he had risen from the grave, ascended into heaven. That's the last glimpse John had of Jesus. So now he turns, it's like around Christmas time, maybe you see family members you haven't seen in a while, maybe they look a little different. He turns, he sees Jesus again. He's fully man and fully God. Fully God, so all throughout this picture, we see links between Jesus and God the Father. Earlier in Revelation 1, God had spoken and said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Now Jesus speaks and says, I am the first and the last. Jesus is God. There's so many allusions here in this passage and all over Revelation to pictures in the Old Testament. I wish we had time to look at them all, even in this passage, but if you want to, you might just write these down. So Daniel describes God as the ancient of days, whose clothing is as white as snow, whose hair is like pure wool. So that's the description of God. Here, it's the description of Jesus. John is describing Jesus in terms in the Bible that are only used for God. Jesus is fully man. He is fully God. Jesus is the fulfillment of centuries of prophecy. So you might write down not just Daniel 7, but Daniel 10. In both of those prophetic passages in the Old Testament, we see a vision of a son of man clothed in linen, with a belt of fine gold around his waist, with eyes like flaming torches, with arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, whose voice echoes like the sound of a multitude. This is a picture in Daniel 7 and 10 of son of man who's ushering in the kingdom of God. And so now we see it, this is who Jesus is, just as has been prophesied centuries before. So realize, these images are not John's answer to the question, Well, what kind of fashion style does Jesus have in heaven? What does he wear? Where does he shop? That's not what John is answering. These are images that have been familiar to John's readers. Images that would have triggered in their minds the words of prophets images that would have evoked in their hearts awe and wonder at a vision of the one the Bible was speaking about for centuries before. 300 specific references over 1,000 years to the coming of Jesus, down to where he would be born. The circumstances that would surround his birth, his life and his death. Which leads to the next characteristic, number four. Jesus is the final and ultimate sacrifice for sin. Fulfillment of prophecy, final sacrifice for sin. both with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Six of the seven times a long robe like this is mentioned in the Old Testament. It refers to the clothing of the high priest who would enter into the most holy place to offer sacrifices for the sins of God's people. So Jesus here is pictured as the one who entered into the presence of God the Father and has offered full and final, once and for all, sacrifice for the sins of God's people. If you are exploring Christianity, this is the essence of why Jesus came. We have all sinned against God. We are all separated from God. And if we die in our sins separated from God, we will be separated from God forever. But Jesus came to offer his life as a sacrifice for our sin. That's why he died on the cross. That's what he was doing. He had no sin to die for, but he chose to die for our sin, for your sin, for my sin, so that when we trust in and follow Jesus, his ultimate sacrifice covers over all of our sin. Jesus is the final and ultimate sacrifice for sin. Your sin, all your sin against God can be completely covered by the sacrifice of Jesus on a cross. Number five, Jesus is infinitely old The hairs of his head are white, like white wool, like snow. That is a deliberate picture, biblically, of age. Like I mentioned a minute ago, this is the description Daniel gives of God as the ancient of days in Daniel 7. Now it is applied to Jesus because Jesus has existed forever. He did not begin. He has always been. He's infinitely old, he is infinitely wise. In ancient culture, white hair was a symbol of accumulated wisdom through years of experience. The experience and wisdom of Jesus knows no end. Which leads to number seven. Jesus sees all things, his eyes are like a flame of fire. Nothing escapes his gaze. He sees it all, he sees through it all. Jesus sees through all the pretense, he searches every area of our hearts, he sees the purity of our hearts, and he sees the stains in our hearts. Jesus sees everything we would like to hide. Nothing in your life, or my life, escapes the pure and penetrating gaze of Jesus. Which means Jesus knows all things, this image of Jesus's eyes like fire reappears in the letter to Thyatira in Revelation chapter two. Jesus knows everything, including everything about you, better than you know about you me. Number nine, Jesus' purity has no error. His feet are like burnished bronze, bronze metal would have purified in a furnace so my glow in purity, Jesus is absolutely pure. His purity has no error, and Jesus's power knows no equal. Burnished with bronze is also a picture of glory and might and strength. Number 11, you hanging with me halfway there? Jesus's voice resounds with authority. First, his voice was like a trumpet. Now, it's like the roar of many waters. What imagery. And from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. So we see, it's double-edged. On one side, this is number 12. Jesus declares eternal salvation for all who trust in him. All who trust in him, Jesus declares, you are saved from your sin. At the same time, Jesus decrees final judgment for all who turn from him. Later in Revelation chapter 19, we will see Jesus at the final judgment. And the Bible says, from his mouth, come a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Jesus is the judge whose declaration, whose decree, finally and forever decides your fate, my fate. His voice resounds with authority and his face radiates with light, like sun shining in full strength you don't look out into the light of the sun it's a picture of radiating light which causes john to fall on his face as though dead but jesus so imagine this jesus lays his right hand on john and says these words he says fear not I am the first. Jesus had the first word in creation, Colossians 1. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Jesus is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. Jesus had the first word in creation, and Jesus will have the last word in creation. Jesus will fully and finally usher in new creation. Jesus is the force behind all of human history he alone is able to bring the divine purposes to pass because he has conquered you see Jesus was dead for a time I love this Jesus says I died for most that's like the period at the end of the story but that's not the case here I died and behold I am alive forevermore Jesus was dead for a time but now ladies and gentlemen Jesus is alive for all time he is the living one who will never, ever die again. Side note here, did you know one of the best-selling, supposedly Christian books of the past 10, 20 years was titled Heaven is Surreal. A fanciful account of heaven told by a four-year-old boy it talks about how he got a halo and wings, but he didn't like them because they were too small. Claims that he sat on Jesus' lap while angels sang to him. He even met the Holy Spirit, whom he described as, quote, kind of blue. Over 7 million copies sold. Not to be confused with another book entitled The Boy Who Came Back From Heaven, another bestseller by a man named Kevin Malarkey. Malarkey's son claimed to see Satan many times, described him as having a funny-looking mouth and a few moldy teeth, no noticeable ears, two bony arms, and two bony legs. These books, not to be confused in the Christian bookstore with My Journey to Heaven, What I Saw and How It Changed My Life, Marvin Bestman, Flight to Heaven by Dale Black, To Heaven and Back, A True Story by Mary Neal, 90 Minutes in Heaven by Don, not John, Piper. Nine Days in Heaven by Dennis Prince. 23 Minutes in Hell, that's a different twist, by Bill Weiss. Make no mistake, there is money to be made in peddling fiction about the afterlife as nonfiction in the world of Christianity today. These books, to be clear, are written by sinful people just like you and me who will die, who will all succumb to death one day. Why listen to them when we have the words of the king who has conquered death all time? Let me free you, and hopefully these are not in stocking stuffers that you have purchased for anyone this Christmas. If so, take them out and give them this instead. Jesus was dead for a time. He is alive for all time, which means, number 19, death is controlled by Jesus. He has the keys of death in Hades. Keys, a symbol of authority, in Jewish thought. Jesus says, I have authority over death. I speak and death listens. I speak and death obeys. And because Jesus has authority over death, he has the ability to turn it into gain for you and for me. This is why Lizette, we're talking back there with a smile on her face, she's like, I have nothing to fear. Because Jesus holds death in his hands. Praise God. Death is controlled by Jesus, which all leads to number 20. No one or nothing compares to Jesus. No one, nothing in all of the history of the world compares to Jesus. Again, if you're exploring Christianity, I challenge you to consider anyone who even comes close to comparing with Jesus. You say, well, how do you compare religious teachers or leaders? I would encourage you to start with the question, who else has defeated the grave? Ladies and gentlemen, there is no one like Jesus. Fully human, fully God the fulfillment of centuries of prophecy, the final and ultimate sacrifice for sin, infinitely old, infinitely wise, who sees all things, who knows all things, whose purity has no error, whose power knows no equal, whose voice resounds with authority, declaring eternal salvation and final judgment, whose face radiates with light, the one with the first and last word in creation, who was dead for a time and who's alive for all time and rules over death itself. There is no one like him. Which leads to so two massive takeaways for every one of us. In this room right now, at every from the youngest to the oldest, like right where you are sitting right now, two days before Christmas, two takeaways, two ways to respond. Because every one of us who's listening, seeing this picture right now, has a choice for how we're going to respond. Two takeaways. One, fall down in worship before Jesus. I urge you not to yawn in the face of Revelation 1 and move on with the busyness of your day in your life. I urge you to fall down in worship to every person within the sound of my voice. See the gulf of grandeur and glory that separates you from Jesus and fall on your face at His feet. Specifically, if you are not a follower of Jesus, I would say to you, have much fear. And here's what I mean by that. You are not a follower of Jesus, if you have not trusted in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you on the cross, if you are separated from God in your sin and have not turned to this Jesus as Savior and Lord of your life, then you have much reason to fear today. You will meet Jesus one day as either Savior or judge. That day could be today for any one of us. Not one of us is guaranteed tomorrow, or he may come back before we get to Christmas. Great. So, none of us guarantee tomorrow, so I urge you to worship Him today. The Bible teaches that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So the question is not, will you bow? The question is, will you bow now or will you bow when it is too late? I urge you to trust in Jesus today. Like right now in your heart, I've prayed, for this moment, like, specifically for those who, for anyone who does not know for sure that if you were to die now, would you spend eternity in heaven? If you do not know, like, absolutely, I know I would through my faith in Jesus of trusting in Jesus, and I invite you, trust in him now. I was, I was speaking at this faith day at Nationals Park a couple months ago, and one of the leaders of the event said to me, well, I just, I hope we don't talk about judgment or hell or anything like that. I get what you're saying. Like, I mean, who, who wants to come to like, it's like Christmas time. Why don't we talk about judgment and hell? Like, you're a baseball game. Why do you want? But here's the deal. Just imagine for a moment. It's true. <laughs> like, the Jesus is the judge and eternity is dependent on how you respond. If that's true, then certainly you want somebody to say something about that. And we don't pretend like that's not really, like, well, it doesn't feel popular. Like, it doesn't matter how it feels. If it's true, like, we want to know that. I just want to encourage you. Like This is the Bible speaking loud and clear. God has brought you here right now to hear this news loud and clear. Your eternity hinges on how you respond to Jesus. I urge you. He loves you. He has offered sacrifice for your sin. He's made a way for you to be forgiven of all your sin, reconciled to God forever. I urge you, trust in him today. If you're not a follower of Jesus, have much fear. But for all who have trusted in Jesus, for all who trust in Jesus today, if you are a follower of Jesus, have no fear. I No fear. And we, yeah, we've talked about this, about how as we've surveyed, even in our church, like some of the struggles most people have, like at the top of the list is fear in so many different ways. And here's why I just want us to hear what the Bible's saying here. I want you to picture Jesus putting his hand on John's shoulder saying, do not fear. Listen, just get the picture of what's happening in this passage. Like you have these lampstands, these stars. What does this mean? Well, John tells us That Jesus is standing in the middle, these lampstands, and the seven golden lampstands symbolize the seven churches that John is writing to. So churches that are filled with Christians who are going through dark days. So where is Jesus while all of that's happening? He's right in the middle of them. And he's holding seven stars in his right hand, which are the angels, he says, of the seven churches. So the angels who in some way represent these churches. So the picture is Jesus holding them in his right hand, protecting them in the midst of all they're going through. And he's using these churches for a purpose. Remember, the point of a lampstand is to provide what? Light. So see it. The Bible is teaching. God is saying right now, men and women, so going through all kinds of things in your life, in your work, in your family, in this world needing patient endurance, needing grace to go on, needing wisdom, needing peace, all these things. Jesus is saying in the middle of it all to you right now, have no fear. Why? Because Jesus is present with you. Get this. This Jesus, with all 20 of these characteristics, this Jesus is with you. No matter what you're going through right now, what you will go through in 2019, know this. Jesus is not distant from you. He's not just over you. Jesus is right there with you in the middle of dark days in a dark world, you are never alone. Jesus is present with you. Jesus possesses you. He holds you in his hands. And Jesus protects you. Feel his protecting power. In a world of tribulation and trial and hurt and heartache and sin and suffering, Jesus is your protector. And ultimately, Jesus has a purpose for you. He has a purpose for you to shine light greater Washington, D.C., in your life, in your work, in your family, amidst neighborhoods, amidst offices, amidst schools and communities all across the DMV. I swear, I just want to encourage you here at other campuses, like tomorrow especially, as we celebrate Christmas Eve and all of our campuses and the gospel will be crystal clear. I can invite people who are around you, friends, family members, coworkers who don't know the gospel, like, come to one of these gatherings pray that God would open their eyes to see the love of Jesus for them. See Christmas as not just a holiday to be observed, to see Christ as a king to be praised and loved and worshiped for all of eternity. This is why we're here. Jesus has a purpose for us to shine light in greater Washington, D.C. and to shine light among the nations in Yemen and Ethiopia and West Africa and East Asia and all kinds of different ways. This is why we exist as a church. So fall down in worship and then rise up as witnesses. Jesus says, John, rise up and write down what you have seen. Now, obviously, we are not writing a Bible book today, but we have much to tell. So let's tell others about who Jesus is with a heart and mind that are captivated by his glory. May We never cease to be amazed by the magnificence of Jesus. May we never tire of gazing upon His glory. May His glory continually captivate our imagination and overflow into our proclamation as we give our lives on a passionate mission to proclaim His gospel, to proclaim the light of Jesus in a world of darkness. I give you the portrait of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. So as you reflect on a baby in a manger, reflect on these 20 characteristics as well. So let's pray. Oh God, uh, I'm, I'm just overwhelmed by this moment. We've just seen this picture of Jesus in Revelation 1 and every one of us, including myself, we all have a choice right now for how we're going to respond to it. Please, please keep us from yawning and moving on with the busyness of our days and the activities this week. Please, oh God, keep us from giving tip of the hat to Jesus. Keep us from just a a religious, monotonous routine that says we'll give Jesus nominal adherence or casual attention once a week. Jesus, you are worthy of so much more. You are worthy of our lives. You're worthy of all our worship, all our praise, all our adoration, and you we trust we praise you, we glorify you. So help us, God, help us, we pray, to fall down and worship, God, I pray. Even some who are here who may have been going to church for decades, like the, today might be the day where they see Jesus in a fresh way, maybe for the, really the, for the first time and say, I trust in Jesus. I want to live my life in the worship of Jesus. God, I pray that you would cause that to happen. God, I pray for some who are just exploring Christianity, maybe even coming to church for the very first time. God, I pray, I pray that this moment, they might see Jesus. They might see your love for them. They might put their faith in Jesus. God, I just pray, I pray that right now, you might shape, change the trajectory of lives for eternity. Power of your word, what we've just seen. And then, oh God, for all who've put their trust in you, God, help us, help us to grow in our and amazement at the glory of Jesus and help us to grow in the surrender of our lives and our trust in Jesus amidst all the things we go through in a a dark world. Jesus, we praise you as the light that overcomes the darkness. We exalt you for all of the characteristics we have seen in your word today. In your name we pray, amen.
4: My Savior, are that if
0: This is for those of you that would like to raise your children, instilling God's values and His words into their lives. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries can send you CDs of our children's program. The program includes Let's Read the Bible, Praise Time, Pray Time, and Story Time. If any of you are interested in the program, please contact the office or email us to receive the CD. I hope that this program can spread out through our English-speaking children. Our office number is 602-866-8999. And email address is heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Coming up next is Understanding Israel.
5: Hello everyone, this is Susan Holtgrew, and welcome to another program in our series, Understanding Israel. Last week, we looked at a brief history of Israel, how God chose the patriarch Abraham to begin the nation, how the nation was split and the northern kingdom was scattered all over the world, and the southern kingdom went as far as Babylon and came back again to the land only to be finally scattered after the second temple was destroyed in 70 AD, and that the Roman Empire crushed the remaining Jews and renamed their land Palestine. We also briefly looked at how the Jews began coming back to their land after Mark Twain's book, Innocence Abroad, described the land in 1867, as well as the birthing of the nation in 1948, and how God has blessed this nation these past 71 years. So that, in a nutshell, is what has happened on God's calendar so far. Today we are going to look at some items that are on his calendar that we see being fulfilled in the present. In Israel today, of the Jewish people, because there are Israeli Arabs that live there too, over half of the population is secular. They either don't believe in God at all, or they only celebrate the holy days because it is the thing to do. Kind of like some Christians who never go to church except for Christmas and Easter. Most of the rest of the Jews are religious or orthodox, and a small minority are messianic Jews, or Christian Jews. These are Jewish people who have accepted that Jesus is the Messiah that was foretold in the scriptures. Also today in Israel, there is a deep desire among the Orthodox Jews to build another temple, a third temple, and begin the sacrifices and all the other rituals that were done during the existence of the first and second temple. The Temple Institute is working on the blueprints for the building of this temple, and they have already made all of the items that were in the other temples, such as the bronze altar, the golden lampstand, the laver, and the table of showbread, as well as the tools and equipment that are required for sacrifices, all the priestly garments, including the high priest's attire, according to the descriptions in Exodus chapters 25 through 28. They say they even know where the Ark of the Covenant is. The Temple Institute has also called upon the Jewish men who know they are from the tribe of Levi, to come forth and be trained in the performing of the rituals and sacrifices, and they have also selected a high priest from the tribe of Levi as well. God had set aside the tribe of Levi during their time in the wilderness, which we can read about in Numbers chapter 1, verses 47 through 51. The Levites, however, were not numbered among them by their father's tribe, for the Lord had spoken to... Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not number, nor shall you take their census among the sons of Israel. But you shall appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony and over all its furnishings and over all that belongs to it. They shall carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings, and they shall take care of it. They shall also camp around the tabernacle. So when the tabernacle is set out, The Levites shall take it down, and when the tabernacle encamps, then the Levites shall set it up. But the layman who comes near shall be put to death. In chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, God continues, Bring the tribe of Levi near, and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may serve him. They shall perform the duties for him and for the whole congregation before the tent of meeting." to do the service of the tabernacle. Then skip down to verse 12, and the Lord says, Now behold, I have taken the Levites from among the sons of Israel, instead of the f- every firstborn, the first issue of the womb among the sons of Israel. So the Levites shall be mine. Today, at the site of where the second temple used to be, called Temple Mount, is the Islamic Shrine, Dome of the Rock. It is considered the third most holy place in the Islamic religion and is under the control of the Muslims. There are a lot of politics surrounding this area that I will not discuss, but the religious Jews have the hope that someday they will be able to assume authority over that piece of land and build their third temple. Also, as a side note, this year, the year 2019, For the very first time at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, the choir of Levites will be singing the Songs of Ascent, which for us Gentiles is Psalms 120 through 134. These songs, or psalms, were sung by men as they traveled the road up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, that we learned about a couple of weeks ago. This again shows how far they have come in getting ready for the third temple. Another thing that the religious Jews today are doing is looking for the perfect, unblemished red heifer. In Numbers chapter 19, beginning with verse 1, we read about the ordinance of the red heifer. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is the statute of the law which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel that they bring you an unblemished red heifer, in which is no defect, and on which a yoke has never been placed. You shall give it to Eleazar the priest, and it shall be brought outside the camp and be slaughtered in his presence." Next, Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times. Then the heifer shall be burned in his sight. Its hide and its flesh and its blood with its refuse shall be burned. The priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet material and cast it into the midst of the burning heifer. The priest shall then wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward come into the camp, but the priest shall be unclean until evening. The one who burns it shall also wash his clothes in water and bathe his body in water, and shall be unclean until evening. And finally, in verse 9, we read, Now a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place, and the congregation of the sons of Israel shall keep it as water to remove impurity. It is purification from sin. This ritual of purification is an important step for getting the third temple ready for the sacrifices and rituals performed by the priests. There are many pastures in Israel and on Jewish farms around the world that are watching for that perfect unblemished red heifer. One white hair anywhere disqualifies that heifer from being sacrificed. As Christians today, we watch Israel. We know that at some point in the future, the temple will be built. Daniel speaks briefly about it in chapter 9, verse 27, Referring to the Antichrist, he writes, And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. And in chapter 11, verse 31, again referring to the Antichrist, Daniel writes Forces from him will arise desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice and they will set up the abomination of desolation Jesus also refers to Daniel's prophecy when speaking with his disciples in Matthew chapter 24 verse 15 where he says Therefore when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet Standing in the holy place. That holy place Jesus refers to and the sanctuary that Daniel refers to is the third temple. In the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ also mentions the temple in chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. John writes Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God, and the altar, and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for forty-two months. This is during the tribulation, or what is also known as the time of Jacob's trouble, and we will be studying that subject next week. So until next time, God bless you all, and goodbye.